Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we Welcome go. Welcome Sixty-seven of the podcast in Assuming America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Friday, December tenth, two thousand twenty-one. People, I hope everybody is doing well. Hope everybody is having a great week. Hope everybody is ready for a busy and fun episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. We got three weeks left in twenty twenty-one. Cannot believe it. So much to get into. Fun time of year. College football starting to wrap. College basketball ramping up. This is the rundown of today's show. We will obviously open the big news in college football. The coaching carousel just won't end. Chip Kelly, now your favorite to get the Oregon head coaching job. Does it happen? Is it good? What does it mean? And of course, what happens next at UCLA? From there, we'll talk a little transfers. Uh, This is a busy time for transfers. Remember, National Signing Day is next week. Many of those kids want to, that are in the portal, wrap up their spot on their next school and get enrolled for January. So fun time in college football. Then college basketball will switch over. We'll talk a little about my boy Mike Woodson. Tough loss for the Hoosiers here on this past, uh, whatever it was, Wednesday night. Blew a 22-point second-half lead. And, of course, we'll wrap with a busy weekend in college hoops. We'll preview what should be a really, really, really fun weekend in college hoops. Really exciting time. As I said, very fun. And you know it's going to be a great episode. Do you hear the sirens in the background? If you do not, I have ambulances going up and down my street right now. You know the takes are going to be hot when they called the fire department. So with that said... Let's get to the topic of the day. And to me, the topic of the day is pretty straightforward. I'll say this, and I've said this many times before, is that uh, sometimes, listen, what I would say is when I prepare this show, I am very much like a football coach, right? As soon as the last show is done, I'm on to the next one. What am I going to talk about? Is there going to be a guest? How much time am I going to dedicate to this? Do we do college hoops? Like, I spent a ton of time planning and thinking about this podcast. Why do I bring it up? It is because as I was thinking on Thursday, what am I going to talk about on Friday's episode? I didn't know what I was going to lead with. And then out of nowhere, out of the coaching carousel heavens, we get a report from John Canzano, the best, probably most plugged in person in the state of Oregon, that Oregon, the Ducks, have asked permission from UCLA to speak to Chip Kelly as their next head coach. So we got a blast from the past. Maybe the former 
Ducks head coach is now the future head coach. And what I would say about this is a couple things. One, first of all, we know that this vacancy is open because of Mario Cristobal. And two, what I would say is, um, you know, just kind of an interesting timeline on all this. I just referenced John Canzano. I would argue probably the most plugged in person in the state of Oregon. I actually kind of started following this process through him about a week ago. I remember when, you know, I remember when, Mario Cristobal, when the, the rumors first started to really ramp up for Mario Cristobal going to Miami, and on Saturday night, as I'm getting ready to do my Fox Sports radio show, I see this guy, John Canzano, just tweet out something about how if, if my, Mario Cristobal were to leave Oregon for Miami, that Chip Kelly would be the overwhelming favorite to get the head coaching job. And so I bring all that up just to say, one, this guy has been on top of everything. But two, that really kind of was the first red flag of like, oh, this Mario Cristobal thing might be happening because why else would a guy in Oregon be tweeting about who would be next if he did not believe that there was a very good chance that Mario Cristobal was going to be leaving and that Oregon was already coming up with contingency plans. And now that contingency plan is official as Chip Kelly appears to be the favorite to be the next Oregon head coach. And so let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Let's debate it. Because to me, I think it opens up an entirely different can of worms. Chip Kelly, of course, was at Oregon for four years, four Pac-10 and Pac-12 titles, obviously over the course of a four-year stretch, went from the Pac-10 to the Pac-12, was indisputably the greatest coach in the program's history. But a lot has changed since then, and I think there are pluses and minuses to considering him as the next head coach at Oregon. I think the biggest plus is exactly what I just said. Oregon was always a very good program under Mike Bellotti, and he took them to an elite level, where, as I said, four times they were they were Pac-10, Pac-12 champions. Once they played for a national championship, and I believe in his final year, had there been a four-team playoff, not only would Oregon have made it, but I believe they had a team that was good enough to win it. And I also think because of Chip Kelly's success, it helped lay the groundwork for everything that Mario Cristobal did over the last three, four years at the school. And to fully understand and to fully appreciate what Chip Kelly did, I think we have to kind of go back and think about what Oregon was before Chip Kelly. Because I'll tell you a funny story. When Mario Cristobal officially did decide to leave Miami a few days ago, um, you know, I was kind of on social media and I was texting with some buddies and I was texting with some friends. And I had a buddy send me a kind of a, a, a video mashup of all of Mario Cristobal's biggest losses at Oregon. And this was from an Oregon fan. Uh, the loss to Utah in the Pac-12 championship, or the, the loss to Arizona State two years ago before they won the Pac-12 championship. The loss to Utah this year in the Pac-12 championship game. The loss to Stanford this year earlier in the season. And kind of the insinuation, and the insinuation that I've seen from other Oregon fans is the idea that Oregon is going to be better without Mario Cristobal. We don't need him. Screw him. Let, him. let him go back to Miami if that's what he wants. And what I would say is, one... I don't know that I agree with that. I don't think Mario Cristobal is Vince Lombardi, but let's stop acting like Oregon is USC or Ohio State or Alabama in terms of history, and I don't know when Oregon fans believe that it is their birthright to be great at football, but I think we just got to go back to pre-Chip Kelly to realize what Chip Kelly did at that school and how incredible he was as the head coach. Because when my buddy sent me that video, I said, wait a second now. I don't feel like I'm that old, but I kind of remember a time where Oregon was sort of irrelevant on the national scene. Well, just for fun, I went ahead and looked it up, and uh, yeah, Wikipedia basically confirms exactly what I said, what I thought, okay? So just for fun, I went ahead and looked it up, and I said, I know Chip Kelly was awesome. I know that uh, Helfrich and, and Taggart and Cristobal had their ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys since he left, but how good were they pre-Chip Kelly? So I went ahead and looked it up. 
from 1950, how about this, from 1950 to the year that Chip Kelly took over, to the year before that Chip Kelly took over in 2009, from 1950 until 2008, Oregon had, are you ready for this, four conference championships from really 1948 was the last one, so 1949 to 2009. Not great at math. That comes out to about 60 years, if my math is correct, or is it 70? I don't even know. 60 years. Four conference championships in the years of 1957. Don't know how many of you remember that one. 1994, 2000, and 2001. And so the idea that this program was absolutely incredible and an absolute juggernaut when Chip Kelly took over, it simply is not true. And so Oregon, as I just said, four conference championships from 1949 uh, until 19, until 2009. Again, I think that's 60 years. I hope my math is right. Otherwise, I sound like an idiot. But the bottom line is, you know what happened after Chip Kelly came in and took over? And I will say, like, Mike Bellotti was good his final few years at Oregon. But Chip Kelly came in and took them to another level. Here was Chip Kelly's four-year run at Oregon. And in some ways, it feels like it was much longer than four years. And in some ways, it feels like it was shorter. First year, goes 10-3, and three, wins the Pac-10 championship, goes to the Rose Bowl. Not bad, I would say. Pretty good first year for Chip Kelly over there at Oregon. 10-3, and three, by the way, he lost his first game. That was the game that LeGarrette Blunt punched somebody. But 10-3 and three is first year. Uh, you go to the Rose Bowl. You lose in the Rose Bowl to Ohio State and Terrell Pryor. But 10-3, and three, Pac-12 championship. Second year, 12-1, Pac-12 championship, national championship game against Auburn. Okay, that was the play, that was the game where Oregon was. I don't know if they were in control. I don't know if that's fair or unfair. Michael Dyer, we think he's down. He's not down. He gets up. He runs first down field goal. Auburn wins the national championship. Year three, 12 and two Pac-12 championship and year four, 12 and one Pac-12 championship. And that was a year. I remember this like it was yesterday. That was the year that Alabama beat Notre Dame in the national championship game and they destroyed them. I remember I had a buddy who was an Alabama fan who was like really into analytics and he was crunching the numbers. He was breaking. He said, this Oregon team is the second best team in the country. They scare me way more than Notre Dame does. They scare me way more than whoever. Notre Dame uh, was the runner up, but that was a year where Georgia was really good, where Texas A&M was really good with Johnny Manziel and where Oregon was really good. But I bring all this up to just say in four years for Chip Kelly at Oregon, his overall record was 46 and seven with four Pac-10 or four Pac-12 championships. So 1949 to 2009, uh, four total conference championships, four years under Chip Kelly, four conference championships. So that shows you how good he was, 46 and seven overall, 33 and three in Pac-12 play. And this was a time, by the way, the Pac-12 was actually pretty good. Jim Harbaugh was at Stanford. Pete Carroll was there for a year or so at, at USC. The, the Pac-12 was pretty good at that time, especially relative to it is now. And I would also say, as I said a minute ago, since he left, that program has been on another level. And I think that is in large part thanks to Chip Kelly. So when we start to look at how good can Chip, how good of a hire would Chip Kelly be at Oregon, we have to understand their greatest heights as a program came when Chip Kelly was there and then immediately after Chip Kelly was there when in 2014 they played for a national championship almost exclusively with Chip Kelly's players. It's also worth noting, I think Chip Kelly is owed a debt of gratitude from Mario Cristobal, from the current coaching staff that allowed them, because I do think, again, the infrastructure that was put in place 10 years ago under Chip Kelly, 
I think that helped Mario Cristobal in 2018, 2019, 2020 when he went on the recruiting trail. Because the bottom line is, Chip Kelly kind of laid out the blueprint. Yes, you can win Pac-12 championships regularly at Oregon. Yes, you can recruit the best players in the country regularly at Oregon. Yes, you can go into Southern California and get the best players, whether USC is good or not, at Oregon. Yes, we can use the Nike money and the uniforms to become a national brand. Yes, Oregon football can become relevant. And so again, I think there is a lot, there are a lot of college football fans that just assume that Oregon has always been either the best or second best program in the Pac-12 since the beginning of time, the Pac-10, whatever, and that's simply not the case. That's basically about a decade, a decade and a half, and it's because, I don't want to say almost entirely because of Chip Kelly, but because in large part, thanks to Chip Kelly and what he has built at Oregon. So with that said, I think it makes sense to bring him back. Best success you've ever had. He knows the program. He knows the team. He knows what it takes to build a national championship caliber team at Oregon. He's obviously already in the Pac-12. He's back in college football. And let's also be honest, everybody at UCLA isn't totally happy with him right now either. And so for him, it kind of makes sense to start looking for other options, not because he's going to be fired, but because there is talk that they want him to shake up his coaching staff. They want him to make changes, all this, all that. I do think he's the best candidate for Oregon, and I also think it'll be interesting to see if Oregon believes that he that, that he himself is the best candidate for them. I also don't think this is like a grand slam home run impossible to, to fail higher either, and I think it's kind of worth noting that, yes, Chip Kelly had this program at an insane level a decade ago, but a lot has changed in a decade. And obviously, look, the, the first part that has changed is that the Chip Kelly brand uh, has gone a little bit sour. I don't think he was quite as bad in the Pac-12 as he was, or in the NFL, excuse me, as I think a lot of people remember. If you go back to his three years in Philly, 10 and 6, 10 and 6, 6 and 9, uh, had one year in San Francisco where he went 2 and 14, and that was what got him back to college football. But I mean, look, first two, first season he makes the playoffs, second year he wins 10 games and is good enough to make the playoffs, and in year three it kind of falls apart, they go in a different direction. But it's also worth noting, like, didn't really work in the NFL, and even at UCLA, yes, he went eight and four last year. Yes, I've defended him. Yes, I've last last season. Yes, I I've defended him. Yes, I said that if in the 2020 season there had been a full schedule, UCLA was three and four. I believe they would have gotten to six and six and gone to a bowl game. But let's not act like this has been a completely smooth rebuild at UCLA either. Complete disaster in year one, three and nine. Complete disaster in year two, four and eight. Again, finally started to turn a corner last year, and then really made the jump this year. But at the same time, a lot of the things that have that made him successful early in his career have changed. He was the offensive guru. It was about tempo. It was about pace. It was about speed. Well, now everybody does tempo. Everybody does pace. Everybody does speed. What made him so unique seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, that's no longer unique. That's par for the course in college football. And if anything, guys like Lane Kiffin and Josh Heupel have taken it to another level in this sport since Chip Kelly left. On top of that, what I would say, like, I just think Again, that, that Chip Kelly brand has kind of soured, and part of the reason that he left Oregon the first time is that if you kind of read and you kind of remember and you kind of think, he started to butt heads with Phil Knight, he didn't really like a lot of the elements that came with coaching college football, and you're kind of starting to see the same stuff at UCLA. As I just said a minute ago, this is a guy that uh, you know is a little bit under fire because he's being stubborn about changing his coaching staff. The defense in year four was not very good this year. And he doesn't want to change the coaching staff. And there's kind of this belief internally that he's got to make some changes. He doesn't want to. But you look at what the defense did. Gave up 44 to Utah, 34 to Oregon, 
42 to Arizona State, 40 to Fresno State, 33 to USC, even in a win over UCLA or USC. And so even though the offensive talent is there and the offensive success is there, the defense has been a disaster at UCLA. He won't make changes. He's a little bit stubborn, a lot of bit stubborn. He's closer to 60 years old than 50 years old. So it's not like you get him for another 10 years. It's not like he has this great rebuild under him. On top of that, he doesn't deal with the media. And I think most importantly, he doesn't like recruiting. Like, if you want to make the argument on why Chip Kelly will be successful at Oregon if he takes this job, if they offer him this job, it's because he will inherit probably the most, not even probably, the most talented roster in the Pac-12 at Oregon. It's really interesting. I was reading some of Mario Cristobal's quotes after he left Oregon, and he kind of told his players in that locker room on Monday when he decided to leave, he's like, guys, I think you guys should stay because we have a national championship caliber team in this locker room. Never forget, Mario Cristobal can be criticized for a lot of things. He's a heck of a recruiter. And if you go back the last few years, number six recruiting class in the country nationally a season ago in 2021. They were trending towards the top 10 class this year. We'll see what happens. In 2020, had the number 12 ranked recruiting class with several five-star and high four-star players. And so I bring it up because Mario Cristobal said, look, the makings of a champion are in this room. And Mario Cristobal has said all along, publicly, privately, on the record, off the record, that he believed that his best teams at Oregon, it wasn't going to be in 2021 this year. It wasn't going to be in 2019 with Justin Herbert. It was going to be in 2022 and 2023 when those rosters really matured. And so if you're looking for a reason to bring in Chip Kelly, it's because next year's Oregon roster might be the most talented roster that he has ever coached, maybe dating back if you know, dating back at the college level, at least not including the NFL, but dating back to that last Oregon team. And this one might be deeper, more athletic, better across the board than even that team. And so if you believe Chip Kelly can take a good program and make it great, elevate it to the next level, that's one thing. But on the downside of it, this is a guy that doesn't like to recruit, doesn't do the high school thing. He's increasingly relied more and more on the transfer portal at UCLA. I don't begrudge him. I don't think it's the wrong decision. But I think it's also worth noting that the next roster that Chip Kelly has, if he does in fact go to Oregon, will probably end up being his best roster at Oregon. And that will probably be his best chance to win big because after that, I just don't think he is going to bring the same recruiting energy and effort that Mario Cristobal has over the last three, four, five years. So this is one, you know, guys, uh, guys and girls, I say this all the time. I come on this show and I love to have very strong opinions about everything I talk about. This is going to work. This is going to fail. This is good. This is bad. Lincoln Riley will do this. Brian Kelly will do that. Uh, Mike freaking Woodson, John Calipari, Kentucky, whatever it is. I like to come on this show and have strong opinions about everything I talk about. But this is one I kind of see both sides. I do think that Chip Kelly's probably the best candidate. I do think he makes the most sense. I do know that he can win at the highest levels at Oregon. But I also know that was 2009. That was 2010, 11, 12. This is 2021, 2022, 2023. And is 58, 59, 60-year-old Chip Kelly going to do the same things that 48, 49, 50-year-old Chip Kelly did at Oregon a decade ago? I don't know. I do think it's worth uh, following and pursuing because I do believe this is going to be among the absolute most fascinating stories to follow in college football over the next few days. And I'll tell you this, like, like let, let, let's start to wrap with UCLA because I can tell you definitively, um, I like to have my pulse, uh, my finger on the pulse of everything. If Chip Kelly were to leave for Oregon to become the next head coach at Oregon, 
I can't even garner a guess as to who UCLA would hire as its next head coach. Now, what I would say is a couple things. One, they have a young, super dynamic AD named Martin Jarman. I don't know him well, but got a chance to meet him a few weeks ago. Really young, really engaging, really dynamic. He's actually the guy that hired Jeff Halfley at Boston College. Jeff Halfley had a great first year last year. Um, And so I believe that this is a young guy, an outside-the-box thinker, and I believe that he will come up with a really good candidate to be the next head coach at UCLA. But what I would also say, and by the the way, I have never talked to him about anything football-related or anything like that, so there's absolutely just let the record show zero inside information. I'm just saying this guy has only made a few hires in his young career, but they have been really, really, really good. But I bring it up to just say this, is that while he may come up with a good hire, there are no names that immediately come to mind, okay? I can't even fathom a name to think of. And oh, by the way, now remember, you're not only uh, hiring a head coach for UCLA, you're hiring a head coach for UCLA in an offseason where USC, your crosstown rival, just got Lincoln Riley. Uh, You probably had your best team in a decade at UCLA. Um, You're going to lose a lot of players to graduation. The reason a lot of UCLA's success this season was because they had those super seniors, those older guys that decided to do the extra year. And so I can't even begin to speculate who they would go after. I have a buddy who listens to this show. Shout out, Ed. Uh, UCLA fan. He's been telling me for weeks, he said, if Chip Kelly leaves, let's go get Lane Kiffin. I don't know if Lane Kiffin wants to come to LA. I don't know if Lane Kiffin wants to kick USC's butt every single week. I'll say this, that, that would make UCLA-USC about as compelling as uh, the, the, the Iron Bowl or Ohio State-Michigan if Lane Kiffin came. But I don't think Lane Kiffin is leaving Ole Miss, not after this season that he had in signing an extension. And then from there, you start to look at the other candidates and nothing immediately comes to mind, right? Um, you know, I thought there was a, a young, dynamic candidate in the Mountain West named Kalen DeBoer, DeBoer excuse me, uh, but he actually just took the Washington job. So you start to just look across the board. Uh, there's nobody obvious in the Mountain West. Most of the good coaching candidates have either left for another place, taken another head coaching job, whatever. Um, and so I don't know what you do if you are UCLA. Fascinating to think about, fascinating to discuss, fascinating to conversate about. All right, so what I want to do, I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to talk a little transfer portal as this is going to be a very, very, very busy weekend in the transfer portal. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. And I do want to wrap on one more college football topic before we get to college basketball, and that is this transfer portal stuff. And and I know I've said it many times, but transfers are now a topic that we discuss on shows like the Eratora Sports Podcast. I said it on Monday's episode talking about Quinn Ewers, who we'll get to in a second. Um, But the transfer game has changed everything, right? We've always talked about high school recruiting. We've always talked about National Signing Day. But now the transfer portal is so transcendent and is so important to what programs do And every single program in America is recruiting out of the transfer portal. Alabama, their best wide receiver, their best playmaker, Jamison Williams, came out of the transfer portal from Ohio State. Arguably one of their two or three best defensive players, Henry Toto, came from Tennessee. Uh, Oklahoma used the portal. This team used the portal. LSU used the portal for Joe Burrow. And so I bring it up because it is now a major topic. And this coming week is actually a very important week for the transfers for this reason. Next Wednesday is National Signing Day. And because of that, 
because it is National Signing Day, many of these elite transfers want to go ahead and make decisions here in the next few days so that they can go ahead and get uh, signed this week or signed next week so that they can then enroll in January to start classes at their new school and get ready for spring practice. Obviously, if you get in early, you get to spring practice, it, you have a better chance of winning a spot, winning a starting spot, getting ready for the fall. And so over the next week, we are going to see a lot of transfer portal craziness. And so because of it, what I've decided to do is I've decided to take a segment here on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast dedicated solely to transfers. And what I want to do is I want to give you the names of about five, six, seven marquee transfers that are currently in the portal, what the latest is on their recruitments. Some of the recruitments are a little bit more vague than others. And then what I want to do is get you caught up on a few marquee news and notes elements that have already happened in the transfer portal, which are very important for the coming weeks again as we head towards National Sign Day. So let's start with the transfer portal. Let's start with the best players currently available in the transfer portal. And look, you guys know who number one is because I talked about him on Monday's show. It's Quinn Ewers, the former Ohio State quarterback. And at this point, look, it's kind of like Mario Cristobal, right? We, we, you know, we, we spent part of Monday's show talking about why we did or did not like Mario Cristobal's move to Miami and how it went down. But then you got to react to the move itself. And it's kind of the same with Quinn Ewers. You cannot like the way he handled things at Ohio State. You cannot like the way he took a bunch of NIL money and bounced. But now he is in the transfer portal and he is one of the most high profile players literally to ever transfer. This was a guy that was the number one player in the high school class of 2022, reclassifies and by 24-7 sports measurement was the number one high school player in the class of 2021, even though he didn't play a single down this year. And if you believe the recruiting experts and if you believe those that are insiders in this space, they believe that Quinn Ewers, the former Ohio State quarterback, is the kind of guy that can go to a program, put a program on their on his back, and lead them to national relevance. This is the kind of guy where if everything lines up, he could be a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback. And so, of course, we're going to talk about his recruitment, and of course, we're going to talk about what's going on and what's going to happen next. I already kind of talked about it on Monday. I don't think there's really a ton to update. I have said since literally the minute that he hit the portal, I think it's Texas. I think it's going to be Texas. Steve Sarkeesian needs that marquee quarterback. There is an opening. There is availability. There is opportunity. And it was funny because I was on you know, radio and college station on, I guess it was Thursday morning. And at the time, I was asked about, would you take him if you're Steve Sarkeesian? Because this is a guy that's you know kind of just a, doesn't have the best um, you know, reputation off the field, a little bit arrogant, a little bit cocky, a little bit whatever, a little bit. Here's the bottom line. One, he's insanely talented, and in Texas, you can't be too picky here. But two, I think that we are now already at the point where Steve Sarkeesian needs some very public wins, okay? Because when it comes to college football, college football is all about momentum, right? And I, t- I said this on, on radio in College Station. I said, uh, you know, Texas A&M went 8-4 and four this year, but you still kind of feel like the momentum is going in the right direction. They're going to sign a top three, potentially number one overall recruiting class in this current cycle. You feel good about going into next year. Whereas at a place like Florida, Dan Mullen, you feel like it's completely going in the wrong direction and bringing him back another six or eight months into next year, there were going to be no positive headlines, only negativity. And so that's why you had to pull the cord on Dan Mullen this year. So why do I bring it up? It is because Steve Sarkeesian needs some momentum going into next season. I'm not saying he's already on the hot seat. I'm not saying he's going to be fired after next season. 
But you go into next year without a real quarterback, and he has already said publicly, he does not believe that either Hudson Card or Casey Thompson is the definitive long-term answer. Didn't call them by name, but did say that he doesn't know if the long-term answer at quarterback is on this roster. And so I bring it up. You go into year two without a quarterback. You go five and seven, six and six, seven and five again next year. Then we are talking about year three. You're going into year three on the hot seat. And so I believe that Steve Sarkeesian needs any kind of positive momentum. I do believe Quinn Ewers will be a Texas Longhorn, but it remains to be seen. It will be very fascinating to see what ends up happening with Quinn Ewers. Obviously, the other buzz is Texas Tech. He is basically privately, publicly eliminated Texas A&M. I never believed they were interested. As I said on Monday's show, I know for a fact they're happy with Haynes King. I know for a fact that they're happy with the quarterback that they have signed in the class of 2022, a kid named Connor Wegman. And so I bring it up because Texas Tech is the other school that feels like there's a little bit of momentum. Obviously, uh, new head coach Joey McGuire, former Baylor linebackers coach. There's talk about hiring Quinn Ewers' uh, high school coach as a uh, as a as an assistant at Texas Tech. I'm sorry, I just don't see it. Uh, even if whether they hire the assistant coach or not, I just don't see Quinn Ewers going to Texas Tech. This kid is so high profile. He has a chance to make so much money off the field at the college level, and he has a chance to do something that no one has done in 15 years, and that is lead Texas back into national relevance as they get set to eventually head into the SEC. I would be stunned if it is anyone other than Texas that gets Quinn Ewers. Really quickly, let's rip through some of the other big names. Um, you know, the number two guy I believe in the portal as of right now is a cornerback. So corner, not quarter, cornerback named Eli Ricks, who played last season at LSU. Fascinating talent and kind of a fascinating story. Originally from California, went to IMG Academy, balled out at LSU, had a season-ending injury, and basically... Even last offseason, there was talk that he might transfer, and then after Coach O was fired, he officially decided to hit the portal. He was pursued by, and he is being pursued by, literally every marquee program in college football, although this week, the perceived favorite was Ohio State, and Ohio State basically pulled out of his recruitment, many believe, because they were afraid that if they took him, that some of their high school commits would not sign with the program. So the leader in the clubhouse for Eli Ricks is out the door, and now it opens up the question of who is potentially next. And it appears as though this could be the first of many matchups between Lincoln Riley at USC and Nick Saban at Alabama. Alabama is very much uh, in the mix for his recruitment. But this past weekend, he visited USC, where he actually uh, took a few pictures with his former teammate in high school, Damani Jackson, who was the number one cornerback in high school football. So you have the number one cornerback in the portal visiting USC at the same time as the number one corner in high school football. And you start to wonder if those two might end up at USC together, kind of the backbone of what could be uh, the beginnings of, of a rebuild under Lincoln Riley. Eli Ricks, by the way, it is worth mentioning, he is a kid that has one year left of eligibility, which means that he would, again, uh, potentially have one season at USC and could go pro. Many believe he'll be a first-round pick as long as he can stay healthy. Really quick, rip through some of the other big names. Dylan Gabriel, the quarterback from Central Florida. Listen, when he was playing under Josh Heupel, one of the most prolific passers in college football, 7,000 yards passed for between 2019 and 2020. Remember, 2020 wasn't even a full season, had some games canceled because of COVID. On top of that, 32 touchdowns, four interceptions. A season ago, Josh Heupel leaves. He plays a couple games under Gus Malzahn, gets hurt. But even at that point, you kind of saw he's kind of more of a drop back, you know, deep ball thrower than he is kind of a true dual threat guy. And so you kind of wondered if it was going to work under Gus Malzahn. He hits the portal. What will be interesting is he actually visited Ole Miss. 
over the course of last weekend. And I'll tell you this, you know, Lane Kiffin staying at Ole Miss, I believe, is huge for this reason. In the transfer portal era, I believe if he doesn't want to recruit high school quarterbacks anymore, he doesn't have to. Like, he just doesn't have to because every single quarterback that knows I got one year left in college football to make it work. Let me go make it work under that guy. I got to get to the league. And so whether it is Dylan Gabriel, whether it is Spencer Rattler, who we'll talk about in a minute, whether it is somebody that isn't yet in the portal, I think uh, Lane Kiffin is going to have his pick of the litter in terms of elite college quarterbacks. But Dylan Gabriel uh, did visit Ole Miss this past weekend. will be interesting to see what he does from there. Number four, uh, Zach Evans, former running back at TCU, committed to Georgia out of high school, ends up at TCU, averaged over seven yards per carry in two seasons at TCU, five-star guy, he's a baller. He actually visited Ole Miss last weekend as well. He is visiting Tennessee as well this coming weekend, so he will probably stay in the SEC. Couple other names worth noting, listen, uh, you know, I'm not going to try to say too much on this guy, but there is a guy named Olasegun Oluwutami, uh, from Virginia, who was a finalist for the Rivington Award, which goes to the nation's top center. He entered the portal after Bronco Mendenhall left. I mean, you just don't get that kind of player in the portal very often. He will be very much in demand. Theo Wees, one of Oklahoma's top wide receivers last season. He was hurt for most of this year. He's in the portal. It's been pretty quiet from there. And then I think on top of that, the really big name to obviously monitor is Spencer Rattler, uh, former number one overall quarterback in the class of 2019 led Oklahoma to a Big 12 title last year, and I talked about him when he entered the portal. Um, I thought Arizona State might be a potential landing spot, but their starter, Jaden Daniels, has decided to come back. What does that mean for Spencer Rattler? I'll say this. um, My kind of reading of the tea leaves on Spencer Rattler is that the market for Spencer Rattler isn't as great as we believed it to be um, in the offseason. I don't believe Oregon before Chip Ke- before uh, Mario Cristobal left was really an option. That was reported. I've seen some UCLA of Chip Kelly stay stuff. I don't believe that is a real option. And so you start to look around. It's hard to find an easy landing spot for him. There's been some speculation that maybe Nebraska could get in the mix as Adrian Martinez has left. Uh, there's a possibility that maybe, just maybe, uh, who else? That on top of Nebraska, maybe Missouri, who's going to need a quarterback, maybe South Carolina. Shane Beamer, of course, was an Oakland. Oklahoma assistant before getting the South Carolina head coach so we'll see but what I will tell you is I find it very interesting I think the market for Spencer Rattler is not as big as we had anticipated a couple other names Terrence Lewis former top linebacker in the class of 2021 he left Maryland it's been a quiet recruitment so far Miles Brennan okay so Miles Brennan's kind of an interesting story he was the guy who was supposed to be the heir apparent to Joe Burrow at LSU Plays two games, three games last season. Plays really well. Three games, 11 touchdowns, over 1,100 yards passing in three games. Then gets hurt. Then gets hurt this offseason. And so he hasn't played a year and a half. And the question becomes, can he stay healthy? But if he's healthy, I think he's one of the best quarterbacks in this portal. He is available. And I'll give a shout-out to one other small school guy. There's a kid named Miles Frazier, who was an offensive tackle at Florida International. Uh, Butch Davis leaves, Butch Davis retires, whether he retired, uh, you know, intentionally or not, whatever. But this kid, Miles Frazier, an offensive tackle from Florida International, hits the portal and his phone is blowing up, has offers from Texas A&M, Florida State, Auburn, Ole Miss, Mississippi State. So he will be a guy to watch in terms of guys who have already committed. I think there's a couple stories worth monitoring. One, 
Jaden Hazelwood. He was the number one wide receiver in the class of 2019, spent the last three years at Oklahoma, uh, decided to leave when Lincoln Riley left, hit the portal, was Oklahoma's leading receiver with 39 catches this year. He's already committed. He's going to Arkansas. That is a big one because Arkansas is going to be looking for a replacement for Traylon Burks, who just declared for the NFL draft. They may have found it in Jaden Hazelwood, Oklahoma's leading receiver this year with 39 catches. Jake Hayner, one of the most prolific quarterbacks in college football this year. Really interesting story. He began his career at Washington, um, goes to Fresno State this year, 40 touchdowns at Fresno State. And then Fresno State's head coach leaves for, you guessed it, Washington. And so the question was, was he going to follow his head coach from Fresno State back to Washington where he began his career? He actually pulled his name out of the transfer portal this week, and he will be staying in Fresno State. That's big. And then Michigan State, I think this is worth noting, three really good pickups already in the portal. Two linebackers, Jacoby Winman, who was top 15 nationally in tackles this year. Uh, another linebacker by the name of, I'm blanking on the name, oh, Aaron Brule. Great name, by the way from Mississippi State has committed to them. Also, Jalen Berger has committed to Michigan State. So Michigan State already with three marquee transfers. But again, this is stuff to keep an eye on. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we, we know where Quinn Ewers is going by the end of this weekend as he gets set to visit Texas. I wouldn't be surprised if we knew where Spencer Rattler is going by the end of this weekend. These kids are going to have to make decisions. They are going to have to make them quick. And it remains to be seen if they're going to go ahead and... Uh, and and commit to where we think they will. All right, I do want to take a quick break. I want to come right back, and we will wrap with a little college hoops as my boy Mike Woodson, just devastating loss. We'll also talk a little bit about the rest of the week that was in college basketball, and we'll preview what should be a really fun weekend ahead where there's a lot of marquee games, a lot of fun games. Uh, it's just going to be a great weekend in college hoops. I'll preview what you need to watch, all that good stuff. I will be right back. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. We're going to get to College Hoops in a minute. But before we do, I want to get to a message from our partners, our friends at DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. DraftKings has been great to us all fall long, pro football, college football. And now that college football is done, they have an incredible offer for new users for college basketball. Remember a few days ago I told you, college football, bet $1 on one team. If they score one point, you win $100 in free bets. They have the same offer now for college basketball. So all you got to do, go to the DraftKings, DraftKings Sportsbook. Go ahead and click the link in the show description in iTunes. Pick any team this weekend in college, college basketball. Kentucky, Duke, Baylor, Tennessee, Alabama, Arkansas, Oklahoma, whoever. If they score one point, you win $100 in free bets thanks to the DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. This is how you sign up and get, get access to this deal. Only for listeners of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, by the way. Click the link in the show description, in the show bio, and sign up for a new account with DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. Make your first bet. Bet $1 on any team. That's all it takes. doesn't have to be a big bet. doesn't have to be $100. doesn't have to be $500, $1,000. And if your team scores one point, you get an automatic $100 thanks to our friends at DraftKings. It is the best offer going in sports betting, so act now. 
I should mention, if you or someone you know have a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537 in Illinois. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER in Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming, 1-800-9-WITHIN in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia, 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, or call or text Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Must be 21-plus or over and enter, 18-plus or over in Wyoming, Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming only. Minimum $5 deposit, minimum $1 wager. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for full terms and conditions. All right, everybody. I am back. Final time tonight. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I do want to switch gears. I do want to talk college hoops. And first of all, again, a big thank you to our partners at DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. They just have that unbelievable offer going. Cannot encourage you enough to check out DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. The link is in the show description. If you live in one of those states that has legal online sports gambling, first-time users, unbelievable deal, courtesy of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. But speaking of college hoops, I'll say this. It's starting to get to be that time, people, right? And College Hoops is no different than any other sport. Uh, but College Hoops is a sport that I think it takes two, three, four weeks to kind of start to figure out what all these results mean, right? We come in with a top 25, and this team beats that team, and what does it mean, and what about this team, and that team went on a neutral court, and that team lost, and that team won. What does it all mean? Well, I think we're starting to st- see some results that indicate, okay, we're starting to get a feel for who is that upper echelon of college basketball, who might be a little bit overrated, who is definitely overrated, and who might be underrated. And so with that, let's get into what has happened in college basketball over the last couple days. And there has been no bigger story in college basketball than Thursday night at the Rack. I guess they call it Jersey Mike's Arena now at the Rack, Piscataway, New Jersey, as Rutgers hosts the number one team in the country, Purdue. Purdue's first game ever as the number one team in the country. What happens? Uh, Travion Williams, Purdue's big forward, hits a shot with about six seconds left. They have a one-point lead. Everybody's feeling great. Inbound pass to Rutgers, Ron Harper Jr., three-point shot from half court at the buzzer. It goes in. Rutgers upset pandemonium insanity and what I would say about this game is a couple things okay first of all uh you know the great thing about college basketball that is so different than college football we don't have to like completely overreact and and over diagnose and spend 45 minutes talking about Purdue what went wrong is their season over all that good stuff right like I love college football but you know it, it it's such a different sport to cover even though they're both college athletics where Clemson loses to Georgia on night one, and you've got to figure out exactly what does it mean, exactly what's going on, exactly what's at stake. Does Clemson stink? Is Georgia good? Can Clemson get back in? Same with LSU, UCLA. Same with Miami and uh, you know Miami and Alabama. Fill in the blank game, Louisville, Ole Miss, whoever, Notre Dame, Florida State. College basketball isn't like that. And so when I look at this result from Purdue losing on the road at Rutgers in their first game as the number one team in the country, I'll tell you this. Um, one, I don't think we have to overreact. And two, I'm not surprised. If you listen to Wednesday's show, I talked about Purdue and where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. And if you go back and listen, what did I say? I said where Aaron was right, I told you all offseason Purdue was going to be really good. There's nothing sexy about talking about teams that return their entire roster, that bring back everybody from last year's team. This is college basketball. We want to talk about the one-and-done players, the high school recruits, the big-time transfers, all that good stuff. And when it came to Purdue, I said, look, there's nothing sexy about them, but they're awesome. 
But what I also said about Purdue, and you can go back and listen, I said, I don't think they're the definitive number one team in the country. I think it's cool they got to be number one. I have no fundamental objection with them being number one. If I had a vote, I would still put Duke at number one after they barely, you know, they, they lose to Ohio State by a bucket on the road in a game they control for about 35, 36 minutes. I said, look, I don't think Purdue's the best team in the country. I think they're in that short upper echelon with Duke, with Gonzaga maybe with UCLA maybe I still think Villanova is there even with two losses and so to me I never thought Purdue was number one in the country so this loss isn't shocking to me this is college basketball and what this loss said to me is what the Duke loss to Ohio State said to me last week in college basketball I really do think home court matters and this is something that I think you need to watch for all season long in college basketball as it pertains to the home court because what did I say a minute ago Duke first road game last week they beat Kentucky on a neutral court they beat Gonzaga on a neutral court go play at Ohio State and they end up losing that game Purdue taking care of business against uh you know Villanova on a neutral court Tennessee or uh, North Carolina excuse me on a neutral court they destroy Florida State they beat Iowa at home but this was their first true road game and they end up losing and so what this says to me is a couple things one I don't think there are really any truly just elite teams in college basketball this year the way that Baylor and and Gonzaga were last year, although maybe Baylor is. We'll talk about Baylor a little bit as we preview the weekend ahead. But the fact is there might just not be any elite teams, and the, 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 the differentiating factor is not only are there not elite teams, but now we have real home court advantage. And I don't think that we can undersell that enough in this year in college basketball. Remember, college basketball is a young sport. Most of the best players are 18, 19 years old, freshmen and sophomores in college. Why does that matter this year? It is because, don't know if you noticed, freshmen didn't play college basketball last year. Some of them didn't play basketball at all. And sophomores played college basketball last year, but it was a completely different sport than anything we've ever seen. And so I bring it up because there are so few kids in college basketball that have actually played in true road court environments, true road venues, and I think that's going to have an impact all season long. We've already seen Duke lose their only true road game. We already saw uh, we already saw Purdue lose on on Thursday night on the road. And so you start to look at all of these teams win lose. What is going on? It what tends to happen is it, it's it's teams going on the road, going into hostile environments. And so as you start to think about this season, and you start to maybe make your bets, or you start to look at who's good and who isn't, I think we're just going to have to realize that there's a lot of teams that have never played in an environment before, like Purdue did on Thursday night at the rack in North in uh, New Jersey against Rutgers. Those Purdue kids, most of them have never. Jade, let me put it this way. Purdue has an all-American caliber player named Jaden Ivey. He might be a top 10 pick. He has never played in a true road court environment until Tuesday, uh, Thursday night in college basketball. And so to me, I think that's something to monitor. I will also say, if your team is picking up big wins on true road in true road environments, that might be a sign that your team has some sticking power. But I'm not going to overreact to Purdue losing this game. I'm not going to, just like I didn't overreact to Duke losing the other day. UConn lost at West Virginia by a bucket the other day without their two best players. And I'm just using these as examples to say these true road environments are going to be really hard to go into and win. It is something to monitor. I am not freaking out about Purdue. You know who else I'm not going to freak out about? How about Texas? Texas is number seven in the country. They are a team that many people, myself certainly included, spent all offseason hyping. And Texas on Thursday night went to Seton Hall 
and they lost by a final score of 64 to 60. Texas falls to six and two overall. Uh, Seton Hall improves to eight and one overall. And I think there's a couple things. One, first of all, let's start with Seton Hall. I know the more interesting story is in the losing locker room, so we'll get to Texas in a minute. Seton Hall's really good. I told you Seton Hall was really good. They went on the road and beat Michigan. I just talked about how, how hard it is to win on the road. Seton Hall goes on the road, beats a good Michigan team in Ann Arbor, and I told you at the time, I said, this is a really good team. They're deep. They're athletic. They have rim protection. They're super long at every position on the floor, and I think they're going to give teams trouble defensively all season long. Well, fast forward about three weeks since I said that, and Seton Hall is now, as I record here on Saturday night, uh, or excuse me, Thursday night, I'm getting my days all confused here, they are now 8-1, their only loss was to Ohio State by three points on a neutral court in a game where their most important player, uh, Miles Kale, got hurt early in the game and did not return, and other than that, they've been awesome. And so when you talk about teams that are starting to overachieve are probably better than we give them credit for, I absolutely think Seton Hall is one of them. I don't know what the ceiling is for this team, but I, I've seen just about everybody in college basketball at this point a couple times. I think they're one of the 15 best teams in the country. I think they cause all sorts of chaos, and I think it was a nice win for them over Texas. With that said, let's talk about Texas, though, because I do think that there's a lot of you that kind of either love college basketball or peripherally follow college basketball, and you sit, you're sitting back and saying, Torres, all offseason long, you told us Texas was going to be awesome. Chris Beard this. Amazing that. Transfer portal this. What is going on? They've played two marquee games. They get destroyed by Gonzaga on the road in their second game of the season. And then they follow it up. They haven't played anybody of note since then. And they lose this game as well. This was their first non-home game since the Gonzaga game. So Torres, they've played eight games. They've only played two real teams. And they've lost twice. What does it mean? Why do they stink? Explain it to me. Well, what I would say is, and this is going to be a super unpopular opinion, I know you want me to overreact to everything. I know you want me to have hot takes on everything. I actually thought I saw some major improvement from Texas since that Gonzaga game. And when I think about, first of all, never forget, like I said, this is a really good team in Texas, okay? This is a really good, uh, or excuse me, the, the team that they were playing, Seton Hall, is a really good team, okay? The team that they were playing is really, really, really good. So that's one true road environment. This wasn't a neutral court. This wasn't at Madison Square Garden. This was a true road game in Newark, New Jersey, Prudential Center uh, against Seton Hall. One, that's a real team they lost to. But two, I saw a team that I thought was actually really improved. And as I watched Texas, one thing stood out to me in this game. I think we underestimate how hard it is to do what Texas is doing right now, okay? And I'm not making excuses. I'm not trying to justify my expectations for them coming into the season. But let's remember this. Think about how different Texas basketball is right now from the final day of the season last year when they lost to Abilene Christian in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Think about how different this team is. Shaka Smart out, Chris Beard in. That's one. New head coach. Entirely new head coaching staff. And on top of that, they only have four returning players and six marquee transfers. And so why do I bring it up? It is because, yes, there are a lot of schools with new coaches in college basketball, okay? Uh, but this is not Hubert Davis, who was with North Carolina and moved down one seat on the bench from the year before and knows the entire roster and recruited the entire roster. This is not the same. This is not the same as Mark Adams, the new Texas Tech coach, taking over for Chris Beard when he had been with the program for five, six years, helped recruit all the players on the roster. I'll take it a step further. This isn't what Arizona is doing right now, where, yes, they have a new head coach in Tommy Lloyd, but they basically bring back their entire roster intact. 
It's certainly not what's going on at, uh, you know, Purdue or Ohio State or Michigan or UConn where, yeah, there's a new piece here or there, but everybody else for the most part is coming back intact. This is an entirely new coaching staff with an entirely new roster, entirely new players. It's not what's going on at Arkansas or Kentucky where they have a lot of new transfers, but same head coach, a couple marquee players from last year. This is an entirely new deal. And so what I saw on Thursday night against Seton Hall was a significantly improved team from the one that I saw against Gonzaga on the second night of the, the season in college basketball, okay, back in early November. That game I watched from start to finish, and I don't think Texas had any idea what they were doing. I don't think they knew who worked together, who didn't, who, who did well, who did certain things well, who didn't do certain things well. I don't think they had any idea at all what they had in their guys. What I saw on, on Thursday night, was a team and a coach and a coaching staff that is starting to figure out who they have. First of all, they limited it to about seven players, the, uh, seven players that played. That is important. The one thing, you've heard me talk about Penny Hardaway. I'm going to talk about Mike Woodson in a minute. I truly believe that in college basketball, you don't need more than seven, maybe eight players. And the Gonzaga game, Chris Beard's playing eight, nine, ten guys trying to figure out who does what well together. Well, sat, uh, Thursday night against Seton Hall, they played basically six guys, maybe seven, but they kind of figured out what works. Their transfer from Utah, Timmy Allen, he's their best player. Just go to him, go get buckets. He averaged 18 a game in the Pac-12 last year at Utah. Go to him. They have a transfer named Trey Mitchell, who was awesome. Kind of a big guy, but not a traditional big. He plays more on the perimeter, more in the mid post. He had 17, he had 19 points. He had a game high in this game. On top of that, this is a team that has done a lot of things really well that didn't really play up to its potential. This was a team that came in shooting almost 40% from three as a team, and they finished one of 13 from three in this game. Part of that is Seton Hall and their defense, but part of it is that Texas just did not play their best game. This is a team that is shooting 74% from the foul line. Okay, why do I bring it up? They have attempted 100 free throws in seven games. I'm not great at math, but what is that? 13, 13 or so three point uh, free throw attempts a game. They took seven in the game tonight against Seton Hall. And so a lot of this is a credit to Seton Hall. But again, this is college basketball. We don't have to overreact. We don't have to assume the worst every time a team takes a loss. And what I saw was a Texas team that went on the road, and I thought from about the 10-minute mark in the first half until the 10-minute mark in the second half, they were the better team on the court. That's about half the game. They were in control. They could not hold on. Seton Hall got a deserving win. But I saw a lot of progress from that Texas team from what I saw early in the season. I actually like what I saw, and I'm very excited to see this team to continue to progress. It'll be interesting to see. This team really outside of, you know, they play Stanford next week, but it's really about, you know, two weeks until they start Big 12 play, and we're going to get a feel for, is this team good? Is this team not? Is this team real? Is this team uh, not real? But I thought I saw a lot of positive things this past, uh, this game, and I really do believe that this is a team and a program that is trending in the right direction after a disappointing opening loss of the season. You know who I'm starting to get a little concerned about, though? How about my boy Mike Woodson? Mike effing Woodson. Our Mike effing Woodson tees are available, by the way. We actually have sold a bunch despite what happened on Wednesday night. But Mike effing Woodson, head coach at Indiana. Everybody knows my background with him. I criticized him. I crushed him. I said Indiana basketball was dead. And then the offseason happened, and Mike Woodson, kind of like Chris Beard, crushed it in the offseason. 
uh, got a bunch of guys, got a bunch of his guys out of the transfer portal when he came back, convinced Trace Jackson Davis to return for another season. Trace Jackson Davis was all Big Ten this past year uh, in 2020, 2021. This year he comes back. This year he was playing at an All-American level until Wednesday night against Wisconsin. And in the game against Wisconsin on, on Wednesday, they're coming in, they're playing well. Indiana entering that game prior to uh, Wednesday night was 7-1. Their only loss was in a couple overtimes at Syracuse. And you start to think, okay, this team is starting to make progress. So what happened Wednesday night with my boy Mike Woodson in Indiana? Well, it wasn't pretty. Final score in this one, 64-59 at Wisconsin. Indiana had not won at Wisconsin since 1998, and they do not win on Wednesday night. But here's the concern. It's not that they lost the game. It's not that they lost again at Wisconsin. 21 straight years they've gone. What is that? 20, what is that? 23 straight years? I'm getting old, man. I can't keep track of my days, months, years. 23 years since they've won at Wisconsin. But that's not the concern. What the concern is this. Indiana had a 22-point lead in the first half. Indiana had a 15-point lead at halftime. Indiana had a 9-point lead with 6 minutes to go. And they lost by five. And so I can kind of get into in-depth on what I think is wrong with Indiana, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. I think there's a couple things mostly. Um, You know, uh, I don't think Mike Woodson has figured out his rotations. It does remind me a little bit of an NBA team, kind of like Penny Hardaway, where he's just playing too many guys still. Nine guys played big minutes on Wednesday night against Wisconsin. A tenth guy, Anthony Leal, played real minutes as well. They have a point guard transfer, Xavier Johnson, who is just not playing well enough right now. I thought he was awesome early in the season, but on uh, on on Wednesday night, 10.7 assists, but also three turnovers, uh, 0 for 1 from 3. He did not play well enough, especially late, 4 of 16 from the field. He's not been good enough, and I'm not trying to criticize any individual players. Trace Jackson Davis, who, as I said, was playing like an All-American early, finishes with nine points in this game. But what I would say is this, you can, you can, this is one of those, you can break down little things that have happened in these games, but when I look at that Indiana-Wisconsin game, Wisconsin wins 64-59, here is where my concern is. The Indiana that I saw on Saturday night, on Wednesday night, is the same Indiana team that I saw with Archie Miller for four years. It was a team that was in complete control, that came out of the gates, did everything they needed to do, took control, took the lead, took control, did what they had to do, in great shape, in complete control. I keep saying control, but it was unbelievable. And then all of a sudden, there's a defensive lapse there. There's a missed dunk there. There's a wide open three there. There's a missed free throw there. And all of a sudden, you look up and you say, oh my God, this is going to happen again. This is going to happen again. And that's exactly what happened as Indiana, again, I cannot emphasize this enough, they were up 22 points in the first half. They were up 15 points in the set at halftime. And they were up nine points with six minutes to go, and they lost the game. And so why I'm concerned is because Indiana is slowly but surely, they're turning into Nebraska football, right? Love Nebraska football, defended Scott Frost, believe he deserved another year. But there are certain teams in life, programs in life, that find ways to win games. Um, you know... I'm a UConn fan. I remember being a, a UConn student when Jim Calhoun was the head coach. When you had Jim Calhoun as your head coach, you walked into the gym believing 
Every single game, it doesn't matter what the score is, time of possession, how much time is left, anything like that. We are going to find ways, we're going to find a way to win this game. I suspect that is what Arkansas fans feel like with Eric Musselman right now. Doesn't matter how much we're down, doesn't matter if we have a sloppy two, three, four minutes, we're going to find a way to win this game. We trust Coach Musk. Feel like most Kentucky fans probably feel that way about John Calipari up until last year. And then there are these other programs that they just find ways to lose games. Nebraska football and Indiana basketball is that. And so why I'm concerned is because at some point, this is your DNA, this is who you are, and the crazy thing about Indiana, they look so much better coached, so much better prepared coming into these games, and it is the exact same thing over and over and over and over and over. And so when it comes to Indiana, they lose this game, and I don't want to belabor the point. They, pl- they return home this weekend. They have Merrimack this weekend. Then they get Notre Dame in the Crossroads Classic a week from now. And they really do have plenty of time to get right before Big Ten play really kind of ramps up again here in, uh, in, early de- in early January. But you just talk about a team that had a win on the platter to improve to 8-1, and one, to get that signature victory if you're Mike effing Woodson. And instead you lose, and it's not only that you lost, but it looked exactly like every marquee loss of the Mike Woodson era so far. I don't know what to tell you, Indiana fans. You know, I did a a post-game chat with um, an Indiana uh, podcast. It's called the Hot and Cold Podcast. My buddy Sam, my buddy Connor run it. And I I went on, I said, I don't know how you guys do it, Indiana. I I just, I don't understand. Indiana, it's going to be a while because they now have, again, Four straight games, either on the at home or on neutral courts. The only one is against Notre Dame. That's even a power five, power six team. Then they play Penn State, Ohio State, Minnesota at home. So it's going to be a while before we see a signature game from them. But it was just so surreal to see the same thing from Indiana over and over and over again. The same thing that we've seen in previous years. The same thing that we saw under Archie Miller. It happened again as Indiana loses to Wisconsin. With a 22-point lead in the first half. All right, before we get out of here, this is what I want to do. I want to preview what should be a really fun weekend in college basketball. And it's great, right? Because, you know, over the last four or five weeks as college basketball has started, we simply just have not talked a ton of college basketball because we've had so much college football. Well, now college football is done. The regular season is done. Championship weekend is done. And, yes, we still have the FCS playoffs, which, by the way, we have a great FCS podcast on the Aaron Torres media feed. Uh, the FCS Fever with my guy Jeff Colhane, who is the play-by-play voice of North Dakota State. Uh, I encourage you to check that out. I may have Jeff on the podcast next week. But I bring it up to very simply say this. Outside of the FCS playoffs, outside of Army-Navy, not a ton of college football. And so this is a great weekend for college basketball to shine. And so what I want to do is I want to rip through a couple games. I want to talk about some of the big ones. Let's get into it. Let's discuss. Let's debate. And uh, let's start with a top 25 matchup, Wisconsin at Ohio State, noon Eastern, Big Ten Network. And I think it should be a really fun game, right? Because, uh, first of all, pair of top 25 teams, Wisconsin, as I just said, coming off that rally against Indiana. But it's worth noting, Wisconsin, their last two games, they played at home, and they easily could have lost both. The Marquette game they played last weekend, I watched a bunch of that. No disrespect to Wisconsin, but Marquette was right in it right up until the end. Wisconsin rallies kind of pulls away late. And then the Indiana game I just explained. I don't know what Wisconsin is going to look like again in what is just their second true road game of the year. They did play at Georgia Tech earlier this year in one by four. What's worth noting in this game, Wisconsin has a guy named Johnny Davis that you guys absolutely have to watch. Was a freshman last year, kind of just blended in the background, but you could kind of see flashes, super athletic. I don't know what he did in the offseason. 
I don't know what kind of meal plan, prep work, uh, how, how much spinach he ate in the offseason. I believe he might be the best player in college basketball. He's averaging 20 points, six rebounds, two and a half assists per game, 40% three-point shooting. And I said it during the Maui Invitational. I said, if this kid played for Duke, we'd be talking about him as the national player of the year and as the potential number one pick in the draft, or at the very least, a top five pick. This kid is really, really, really good. I'm excited, but I do worry, again, about Wisconsin going on the road in the Big Ten against an Ohio State team that is and 7-2, only losses at Xavier, and a buzzer-beating loss to Florida. Another really interesting game later in the afternoon, uh, Arkansas going to Oklahoma in kind of a border battle. Uh, these are two really good teams. Obviously, the kind of interesting thing from both perspectives is that Arkansas, again, another team that I don't want to say they haven't been tested because I do believe they've been tested. They won that, that event in Kansas City where they took care of Kansas State in Kansas City and then beyond that, uh, Cincinnati in the next game in that event. But this is their first true road game, and I just talked about the value of true road games and what it means in college basketball this year. Overall, I've been impressed by Arkansas. Uh, it's been different than what I thought. Devo Davis, who I thought was potentially the SEC player of the year, kind of really hasn't been the guy that I thought he would be, about 10 points, four assists, four rebounds per game. But the guys that have stepped up, J.D. Note is awesome. Uh, and Chris Likes, like I, I didn't think Chris Likes was going to have this kind of impact for Coach Muss's team, but he's playing 25 minutes a night, 12 points per game, 35% shooting from three. He's about five foot seven, uh, but just blown away by how much he's playing and how important he is to this team. But again, first road game, they're playing Oklahoma. It's worth noting Oklahoma is coming off a loss to Butler. What is important about that one? Uh, Oklahoma, I believe, is going to be a good team under Porter Mosier. I actually talked to Porter Mosier a little bit this summer. He really likes where his team is defensively, but offensively, he admitted to me, at least at the time, that they have a long way to go. Uh, by the way, that was for a magazine interview, so it's not like he, I'm telling some top-secret information, but this is a team that lost to Butler on Tuesday night. They also beat Florida last week, have looked good for the most part overall. Really interested to see them. In terms of Oklahoma, a couple kind of interesting players. Tanner Grove. You may remember him. He's a transfer. He played for Eastern Washington last year in the NCAA tournament, put up like 35, 36 points against Kansas in the NCAA tournament. Uh, also, Jordan Goldwire, who played at Duke for a number of time. Uh, very interesting game there. Speaking of interesting, I just mentioned one of these teams, Marquette UCLA. I'll tell you this. Um, Shaka Smart has blown me away. I am so impressed by this guy and this team and Marquette is kind of playing the old school Shaka Smart style that he used to play at VCU. They play super fast. They're super athletic. They force a lot of turnovers. They get a lot of steals. Um, they they just create. They used to call it havoc when Shaka Smart was at uh, was at VCU, and that's very much what they're doing this season. I think they've been one of the great surprises in college basketball early this year. They're eight and two. Their only losses are to St. Bonaventure, and then they did lose at Wisconsin last weekend. But they did beat Illinois earlier this year. They beat West Virginia. They beat uh, they beat Kansas State this past week. Uh, this past week, and so I. I think this is a really interesting matchup. UCLA, I saw them in person. I was at Mick Cronin's press conference after the Gonzaga game that they got smoked, and he just talked about how embarrassing the defensive effort was. It's been better the last two games. They beat UNLV. They beat Colorado in their Pac-12 opener. Then their most recent game against Washington got forfeited because of COVID on Washington's behalf. And so I bring it up. It's been a while. UCLA is going on the road. I think UCLA is going to have their hands full as they try to improve to 8-1 and one overall. Obviously, UCLA, Johnny Juzang averaging 17 points, 38% from three. Not surprised by that. 
St. Bonaventure play in UConn. Uh, big one for UConn. You know, UConn is coming off a loss at West Virginia. You don't want to freak out. Uh, their two best players are hurt right now, Tyrese Martin and Adama Sinogo, and they still almost beat West Virginia at West Virginia. And so I like what they did there. It was a sloppy game. They probably should have won. They could have won. And it was a disappointing effort. But you got to bounce back against the St. Bonaventure team that has, for the most part, been very good this year. As I just said, they beat Marquette. They beat Clemson. They beat Boise earlier this year in the Charleston Classic. This was a top 25 team, in my opinion, coming into this year. They won the A-10 regular season last year. They won the A-10 tournament. They were an NCAA tournament team. And they returned all five starters from last year. They're kind of one of those older college teams. They do everything well they don't turn the ball over less than 10 turnovers per game a lot of assists they play good defense they do all the little things well this is a big game for both of them I mean obviously for St. Bonaventure this is a win that can kind of catapult your resume for UConn you obviously don't want to lose two in a row without your marquee players really fun one five o'clock eastern time Arizona at Illinois okay I'll try to be quick here so this episode's going long as usual Arizona's awesome okay Arizona say this for Sean Miller you may like him, you may not like him. He left the cupboard full for Tommy Lloyd, the former Gonzaga assistant who has taken over as head coach at Arizona, okay? Tommy Lloyd has a loaded roster thanks to Sean Miller. This kid, Ben Matherin, that's the name you want to know. Ben Matherin, Benedict Matherin, kid, another kid. Could have gone pro last year, would have been a second-round pick, would be playing in the G League somewhere, decided to come back to college this year, and is averaging 17 points per game. And this Arizona team, it almost reminds me, they play a little bit like a Gonzaga team from the past. They space the floor, they shoot the ball really well, they, uh, they score a lot of points, they're averaging over 90 points per game. And it's not as though they haven't played anybody so far. They beat Michigan earlier this season in Vegas. They beat Wichita earlier this season in Vegas. Uh, they took care of Oregon State on the road. This will be a major, major, major road test for them, though. Second road game of the season as they get set to play Illinois. Illinois obviously playing a lot better here over the last couple weeks after a slow start. Uh, really quickly, Kentucky Notre Dame. I don't know what else there is to say. Huge game for Kentucky. First real test since that loss to Duke earlier in the season. They've played a bunch of cupcakes. They've absolutely destroyed everybody. It's the buzz right now in Lexington that nobody's going to the games at Rupp Arena. People are starting to get frustrated with John Calipari's out-of-conference schedule. Well, now their biggest out-of-conference game to date is on the road against Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame is, uh, you know, they're just kind of treading water right now. They, they kind of look like the same team to me that they have in previous years. I've been underwhelmed. They're three and four. They've lost to pretty much everybody of note on their schedule. They go to the Maui Invitational. The only win they get is against Chaminade. Now, I will say, like, they did have to play Illinois a few weeks ago at Illinois in the Big Ten ACC Challenge, but they did also lose their ACC opener at Boston College, 73 to 67, 57, excuse me, 16 points in a game that was not at all competitive. So, uh, I, you know, I don't want to get Kentucky fan hopes up too high, uh, but Mike Bray, I think he just might be on his last legs here. Like I said, they were very underwhelming in Maui against uh, St. Mary's and against Texas A&M. Kentucky, the first major game that they have played. Probably the best game on Saturday, Houston at Alabama, okay? And, and this is one... You don't need much introduction from me, okay? Houston is a team. They're, they're the same team from the Final Fours last year. And, and when I say same team, they have different players. They play the same way. They beat the crap out of you. They're going to out-tough you. They're going to out-board you. I watched them in Maui. They did lose to Wisconsin in the Maui Invitational, but that was a game where Wisconsin went up like, you know, 15-2, to two, and then basically the game was completely even from there. Uh, they're just so good. They're just so good. Marcus Sasser is there. Kyler Edwards, a Texas Tech transfer. I think Houston is, once again, 
They're going to be a top 15 team all year. They're going to be a threat to go to the Final Four. They beat the crap out of you on the boards. Alabama going to be a really tough test for Alabama, who, of course, is uh, you know coming off that major, major, major win at Gonzaga. Houston first true road game of the year, but it's not as though they haven't beaten anybody. Destroyed Butler earlier this year. Destroyed Oregon earlier this year. But this will be a fun one. Alabama, again, needs no introduction after what they did against Gonzaga. Talk about a clash of styles as Houston wants to get physical, wants to get tough, wants to get mean on the boards. Uh, they average uh, you know, almost 39 boards per game. And then Alabama does what Alabama does. Finally, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. 3 o'clock Eastern. Huge one. Nova at Baylor, okay? I, I, I've gone long enough. I, I, I need to get out of here. But I'm just trying to say, this is going to be a really fun game. I think Nova's one of like the four or five best teams in the country. Easily could have beaten UCLA. Easily could have beaten Purdue. Probably should have won both of those games. But they take care of, uh, you know, they take care of Syracuse in the Jimmy V Classic. Now they go on the road. For Baylor, they won Atlantis. You know, how much did we learn? They beat Michigan State. They beat kind of a couple other teams while they were there. I don't know how much to know about Baylor right now. This is their first marquee game. I think this will be the game of the weekend. But I'm telling you, between Baylor-Villanova, Alabama-Houston, Kentucky-Notre Dame, there are a lot, Arkansas-Oklahoma, of really good games this year. Listen, I got to get out of here. Before I do, I want to remind you, make sure you're subscribed. Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you don't, what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. The merch is in. We are selling like crazy. Our Kentucky Revenge Tour tees. Also, my Mike Effin Woodson tees, baby, are selling even after the loss. Uh, our big pig invasion tees will also be coming in soon, so keep an eye out for those. Uh, that is all. Those tees available at AaronTorresOnline.com slash merchandise, by the way. All right, I'm getting out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel Hates, my voice. Shout out to Chip Kelly, who's definitely maybe going back to uh, uh, Oregon in the coming days. A lot of fun stuff today. Great episode. We will be back soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.